Welcome back to our two-part series on generations. I'm Steve Shepard. Thanks for listening. If you haven't listened to part one of this two-part program, you might want to go back and listen to the first one first because it'll help you make sense of what I'm talking about in this episode. So let's start this second part with a deep dive on the generation known as the millennials. As a reminder, these are people who were born roughly between 1982 and 2004. Now, the millennials are as different from Gen X as Xers are from Boomers. Millennials tend to be confident, team-oriented, and remarkably, refreshingly conventional. Unlike the Xers, who rejected everything that would identify them with their parents, it's okay for millennials to be smart. And also, unlike Gen Xers, my tongue firmly inserted in my cheek now, the millennials actually like their parents. This is a very large generation larger actually than the baby boomers, who up until the arrival of the millennials were the largest generation in human history. In fact, let's look at some fairly widely accepted numbers. At any given point in time, there were around 56 million silents in the U.S. workplace. And then that jumped with the boomers to about 74 million people. This had nothing to do with the boomers. It had to do with their parents, the silents, who came home from World War II and did what they should have done, find jobs and make lots of kids. Anyway, from the boomers, who for the longest time were the largest generation ever, we move on to the Xers, who were a smaller generation, about 46 million or so, just over half the size of the boomers. Now, why is that? Well, several reasons. The first and most obvious is that the boomers came of age when two things were happening. Birth control became available, and a woman's right to choose whether to have kids became a pretty prevalent philosophy. That dropped the birth rate. And then on top of that, Boomers worked a lot. You know the phrase dink, dual income, no kids? Well, many boomers chose not to have kids, or if they did, they waited until later in life to have them because they could. Career first, family, and everything else second. Anyway, after the Xers came the millennials, who turn out to be the largest generation in human history, somewhere around 90 million people in the workplace. That number makes you wonder whether their Gen X parents did anything else, given how comparatively small that generation was. But part of the reason is that millennials are actually the children of two generations. The Xers, who wanted to have kids, and the younger, late-stage boomers, who changed their tune and had kids just later in life. For that reason, millennials are sometimes called an echo-boom generation. So let's describe these millennials because they're kind of important, if for no other reason than the fact that they are the largest market and the largest social cohort you will ever encounter. But it's more than that. Millennials are an optimistic, practical, high-achieving generation with the lowest levels of teen pregnancy, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and violent crime that we've seen since we started measuring them as social phenomena. They believe that they have the potential to be a great generation. The good news is, they're right. The question to ask, however, is why do they believe it? And the answer shouldn't surprise you, because they've been told their entire lives how great they are. This is a generation that was indulged as children. They weren't allowed to fail. Everybody got a trophy just for showing up at the ball field. The problem is that this behavior bleeds over into the workplace, and for legacy-thinking managers, it makes no sense and has no place, a behavior that can be problematic. Showing up on time every day and doing your job doesn't earn you a raise. 
it earns you a paycheck. If you want me to give you more, then you have to give me more. Now, it's easy to poke fun at millennials in the modern workplace, but you do so at your peril. Not only are they the largest generation in human history, which means that you might want to pay attention to them, they're also incredibly valuable additions to the workplace. If you're a member of an older generation, listen to what I'm about to say very carefully. Just because they don't do things the way you do doesn't make them wrong. In fact, as innovative as they are, you might want to pay attention, and you'll probably learn something along the way. I know I do, and we'll talk more about this later. But here are some reasons. First, and I know that this is repetitive, but it bears repeating, they are the largest human generation that has ever lived on this planet. Let me say that in a different way. They are the single largest human generation of employees, customers, and competitors that we have ever seen. Second, they are extraordinarily team-oriented. Whereas boomers tend to say, it's all right for the team to win as long as I get the credit, millennials are more likely to say, it's all right if I get a little credit as long as the team wins. They're goal-oriented. It's all about the goal. If the team wins, everybody wins. It's not an accident that all of their childhood television and movie heroes are groups, not individuals. Sesame Street, Fraggle Rock, Ghostbusters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers, Barney, and Friends. Even recent cinema events reflect this bias. Harry Potter is based on a group of wizards in training, millennials all, that as a team will save the world from the forces of darkness, represented by Severus Snape, clearly Gen X, and guided to a certain extent by the all-seeing Albus Dumbledore and Minerva McGonagall, boomers to the core. It's the same model as Star Wars and the Avengers and even the Lord of the Rings series. Television content reflects the generational bias as well. When Gen X was in its prime earning years as late-stage middle managers on their way to executive positions, primetime advertising targeted them as did programming. It's natural. It's what they do. Remember, this is a generation that's also referred to as the latchkey kids. They essentially raised themselves, which means that they were put into a position where they had to fend for themselves because no one else did. At least that was their perception. And the television content that targeted them? Well, think about it. Virtually 100% of primetime programming had the same theme. A strong competitive environment where everybody dies except one. This is the universal theme of so-called reality TV. The shows are not called survivors or what five people want to be millionaires. Second place is the first loser, as opposed to the millennial mindset where everybody's a winner. Third, millennials want to be connected to the world 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's all they ask. Peer connectivity is central to their lives, which is why it's not an accident that social media in all its various manifestations came along when it did, and why, if you have a policy that prohibits its use in the workplace, you need to strike it down. Not tomorrow, now. Now, I'm no fan of social media because I don't believe it's the least bit social, but this isn't about me. Fourth, millennials have no loyalty to brand or company. They're loyal to two things. Their soul, meaning those things that are deeply and personally important to them, and their 3,500 closest friends on Instagram and TikTok. And finally, millennials are on a quest for meaning. 
They're looking for relevance, for a way to make a difference in their lives. And that is true both for their career and their personal lives. If their job gives them a sense of relevance, they'll stay in it for a very long time. Place them in any kind of a position, though, that has them doing the same meaningless task repeatedly with no sense of social value, and they'll leave in a moment's notice. It may not happen today because of the questionable economy and sparse availability of good jobs, but it will happen. There's a reason that causes such as DEI and environment sustainability and governance or ESG have become such talked about and acted upon topics in the contemporary workplace. These are actionable, important themes, especially in the minds of millennials who are now in decision-making positions in most organizations. Now, don't just take my word for it. Go have a look at the number of organizations out there that allow customers to shop by cause. For example, take a look at an online retailer called The Little Market at thelittlemarket.com. This company allows customers to shop for products and services by social causes that they care about and that are supported by the companies they buy from. Now, you can roll your eyes all you like, but they're not the only organization doing this, and the numbers are growing. Millennials vote with their wallets, and there are 90 million of them out there, so taking them seriously better be part of the game plan. Now, one of the things we know about millennials is that they are refreshingly willing to take risks. Not too long ago, I ran an executive leadership program at a major university. One of the themes that I talked about was the multi-generational workplace. And when I got to the part of the presentation where generational theory entered the conversation, a woman in the class raised her hand and told me that she had a story to share. Her husband, who also happened to be in the class and who worked strangely for the same company, groaned and dropped his head into his hands, mumbling, I know exactly the story she's going to tell. With that, she laughed and suggested that he tell it, so he did. He told us that, as you know, I'm the executive vice president of operations for the company, a very large service provider in Canada, and my wife is the executive assistant to the CEO. We've both been with the company for more than 25 years. Now, a few weeks ago, my phone rang, and it was my wife calling from the CEO's office. Do you have an employee named John LaChance, she asked me confirming that I did and that he was a new hire with two weeks with the company under his belt, I asked why she was asking. Because he's here in the CEO's office, she said. Guy said, at this point, I could see my career burning down around me. And I responded, what the hell is he doing in the CEO's office? Well, his wife laughed and she responded, well, it's kind of interesting. He walked in and introduced himself to me, told me he was a new hire and who his boss was and said, look, I don't know what a CEO does. But I think if I did, it might help me do my job better. Could I ask him? Well, the CEO was standing in the door of his office at the time going through the mail and overheard the conversation and said, sure, come on in. And the husband said, well, what happened next? And she said, I don't know. They just left for lunch. Now, at this point, the husband looked at me in front of the classroom and said, and I quote, son of a bitch, I've been with this company for almost 30 years and I've never had lunch with the CEO. Well, I looked right back at him and I said, yeah, but I bet you've never asked either. You see, millennials aren't afraid to die. They'll happily try things just to see what might happen. And if they die, it's okay. They just click a button and get another life. Now, the truth is we're also raising a generation of lawyers with the millennials. And another participant in a different executive leadership program told me this story. She said, my husband and I have a 16-year-old daughter. 
On Friday and Saturday nights, she has an 11.30 p.m. curfew. Well, last Friday night, she came home an hour late, but didn't call. So my husband and I waited up for her. When she got home, she walked in the door and said, I know, I know. So we sent her to her room and told her we'd talk about it in the morning. The next morning, our daughter came downstairs with her Mac Power Book under her arm. Without saying a word, she opened it and turned it around so that we could see the screen. On it was a four-slide PowerPoint presentation. Slide one, statement of the problem. Slide two, short-term implications. Slide three, long-term implications of coming home late. Slide four, so here are the three punishment options from which you may choose. Now, when I asked her what their response was, she said, well, what do you think? We felt like we were on Let's Make a Deal. We just took door number three. Millennials are a generation of attorneys. They don't have the degree, but they sure argue like them. They will negotiate with anyone for anything. And adults call it arguing, but millennials call it getting what they want. Not too long ago, I was walking with a friend of mine in his neighborhood in Los Angeles, and we encountered one of his neighbors, a young woman with her three-year-old child. We chatted for a while, but as we stood there, I couldn't help but notice that the child was wearing a bike helmet, elbow pads, and knee pads. She was in a stroller. She wasn't on a dirt bike or a pony. She wasn't on her way to a roller derby competition. I couldn't help but think, you know, God forbid that this child should learn about gravity by falling down and scraping her knee. Discretion got the best of me, and I kept my mouth shut, but the stories about overprotected millennial children are true. I have to point back at the parents, though, not at the kids. In fact, two new words have been added to the generational lexicon because of them. Boomerang kids and helicopter parents. Boomerang kids are those kids who finish university and come right back home to live, typically because the economy is uncertain and there aren't any jobs to be had in their field. Interestingly, when they arrive, they find that their parents have preserved their room in precisely the state it was in when they left four years ago, a shrine to their remarkably special kids. They just move right back in and carry on. Helicopter parents refers to the parents who simply can't let go when their kids grow up and fledge. To this point, I am aware of three different universities that are building dormitories specifically for parents, not because they're enrolled as students, but because they want to be physically close to their kids to make sure that they survive the rigors of university life. Really? Whenever I lecture about this subject, there's always a handful of people about my age who come up to me laughing, telling me that I just described their kids. One guy from Texas asked me how long I'd been living in his house. And it's true. The law of large numbers says that as long as the statistical sample is big enough, it's valid to make general assumptions about the behavior of social groups. So, to that end, here are some additional facts. Because millennials play by the rules and are morally driven, they naturally expect others to behave the same way. Baby boomers take note. If you make a commitment to a millennial and then you fail to meet the commitment, you're going to hear about it for the rest of your natural life. So what's the best way to motivate and reward all these different generations in the workplace? Well, before we go there, let's first do a little bit of myth-busting. I've lost track of the number of times I've heard people say, millennials don't care about money. Seriously? I'm pretty sure millennials want to live and eat just as well as the next person. In our society, for better or for worse, money's what makes that possible. Of course millennials care about money, but as many studies have demonstrated, there are some strings attached. For example, one of my long-term clients is a global consulting firm, and they did a study 
in which they posed the following scenario to a large group of millennials. Let's assume that I've decided to offer you a job with a starting salary of, say, $150,000. Now, you have two choices. The first is that you can take the full salary for yourself. The second is you can take $125,000 of the $150,000 in gross pay and direct the remaining $25,000 to the charity or cause of your choice. 91% of the people in the several thousand that they asked chose the second option. Why? Because at that salary level, the $25,000 doesn't equate to missing meals, but it does make a measurable difference for someone else. So the issue isn't whether they care about money. That's ludicrous. Of course they care about money. But money earned within a framework of social responsibility, of doing good things in the process that benefit others, that's a powerful driver. And other generations would do well to pay attention. So let's now look at millennials in the workplace. How do we motivate and challenge them? How do we drive employee loyalty? Well, first you pay attention to the characteristics we discussed earlier and to the degree possible structure the workplace around them. Recognize millennials' high level of required social interaction. Use experiential learning and team assignments wherever and whenever possible. There's a reason gamification has become such an important design element in the workplace. Give them freedom with regard to where and when and how they do their jobs. Put work in a nice place, like their homes, and encourage remote work as one option. As morally driven as this generation is, an employer will not be disappointed with the results. Note that the self-policing millennials don't tolerate delays in themselves and others. They're often seen to be unrealistically impatient, and they will therefore deliver on time. They also will not tolerate being managed. As I said earlier, but it bears repeating, just because they don't do the work the way you would do it is not a reason to assume that the work will be done poorly. In fact, I once heard a millennial say to their older Gen X boss, as long as I do it correctly, morally, legally, on time, and at or under budget, why do you care how I do it? That's a great question. And of course, the Gen X boss had no answer. My way or the highway doesn't fly with this generation. In fact, in some ways, they're a generation of very capable litigators, as we said earlier. Next, do everything you can to make the work that they're assigned meaningful. And let me be clear here, work isn't always fun or adventurous or inspiring or even motivating. Sometimes it's just a dull, boring grind, but that's why they call it work. It has to be done to move things forward. But the more time spent explaining the why behind the work, the more likely it is that it'll be seen as something more than busy work. That's not unique to millennials, by the way. Nobody wants to do busy work. But the truth is that nothing will turn off a millennial faster than work that has no perceived redeeming social value. Remember, they're looking for meaning, so give it to them. At the same time, they like variety, so give them a chance to learn continuously and reward their learning with diverse, ever-changing jobs to the extent that you can. Millennials look at work differently than generations that came before them. Some of this comes from the economy, some from hiring practices, some from the aftermath of COVID. But one thing that's an absolute truth is that millennials are far more likely than any other generation to change jobs if they don't feel engaged at work. They're not necessarily looking for a career. They're looking for meaningful work. If the work is meaningful and challenging, then they'll become long-term employees and it'll look like a career. Finally, give them plenty of feedback. 
When assigning work, be clear about the desired outcome and step out of the way and let them run with it. It will get done and it will most likely exceed your expectations provided the work is meaningful and challenging. I can't state this strongly enough. And they most likely won't do the work the way that you would, but that doesn't make them wrong. Okay, enough about the millennials. Let's move on to the next generation. Now brace yourselves. This is a seriously important cohort and the oldest of them are just now getting close to voting age. And the implications of that are huge. This generation is called the plurals for reasons I'll explain in a minute. In the same way that the millennials are sometimes called Generation Y, this latest generation is often referred to as Generation Z. So before we go any further, let me be very clear, that's not their name. They've accurately been given two equally descriptive names, the digital natives and the plurals. Now just a reminder, this generation is a repeat of the silent generation, the generation that has that name because they didn't make waves in society and because they excelled at the fine art of seeking compromise. Their mantra to their baby boomer kids, just be quiet, put your nose down, and do your work. You're lucky to have a job. But keep that compromise thing in mind. You know the political gridlock that we're currently trapped in? Well, guess who's going to shatter it? Digital natives were born during or after the introduction of digital technologies and have therefore never lived in a world without them. Just think about it. They've never known a world without mobile telephony or the internet or video games or social media. Consequently, they're sometimes described as the native speakers of the digital world. They're the best educated, most connected, and technologically most sophisticated generation in human history, and they're just now becoming influential buyers and decision makers. So pay attention. Their birth years are roughly 2005 to 2025 or so, So the oldest of them are just now around 18. That means they're working, they're going to university, and they're voting. But they're also called the plurals, a name that speaks more to the world to which they were born than their behavior. And here's what we know. Plurals are the most ethnically diverse generation that has ever lived on the planet. 55% of them are white compared to 72% of baby boomers. This reflects an ongoing trend, at least in North America, toward what's called a truly pluralistic society in which there is no single dominant ethnicity or race. Here's an interesting and heartwarming fact. By the end of 2019, babies born in the United States were less than 50% white, which means that the plurals have ushered in a truly pluralistic society, a wonderful and important shift for the country and, frankly, for the world at large. So as a generation, what do they think about this? Well, it's all good. The vast majority of plurals are overwhelmingly positive about America becoming more diverse, and it's reflected in the fact that their friendships are ethnically and racially heterogeneous. Like the millennials before them, race, ethnicity, and gender are about as important as eye color. They just don't see it. So as the plurals come into their own and take up an influential position in society, What should companies know about them if they are to attract them as employees and customers? Well, there are a few things that will go a long way. Number one, know this. Plurals have a very, very finely tuned BS meter. They don't hate corporations or brands, but they do hate anything artificial. Second, 
If you're looking to hire them, motivate them, reward them, be genuine in your messaging. They bring many of the same characteristics as the millennials, including a desire to be involved in something bigger than themselves, something socially relevant that makes a difference in the world. Incorporate that in your messaging and don't mess this up. By some measures, they're already more than 20% of the population, and by 2020, they represented about 40% of all consumers, and their numbers are growing. Third, if you want to engage with them, use the tools that they use. That means having a presence on social media, whether you like it or not. And they simultaneously use as many as five different screens and parse information in the blink of an eye. Is this relevant to me or not? Finally, engage. Don't market to them, market with them. If you help them get what they want, which is to fix the world, have a stable and comfortable life, use the most current technology and have a home of their own, you win. Now, these two most recent generations, the millennials and the plurals, are critically important players in the fabric of society. And as I said earlier, to ignore them is to do yourself a serious disservice. Because the millennials are a functional repeat of the famously capable greatest generation, they're ideally suited to inherit the chaos of this first half of the 20th century. They will rebuild and strengthen the institutions that stabilize a country. They will create a longed-for sense of community and belonging, and they'll restore order and purpose, leading the country out of the crisis that plagues it today. Fear not. I believe we're in good hands. Now, technology is only as valuable as the people using it, and the value is directly proportional to the degree to which it brings value to those users. For millennials, technology is a lifestyle choice, not a visible set of tools that they occasionally use. They expect to be fully connected all the time, and they want to have seamless access to content from a really broad variety of devices without hassle. And because millennials are not only employees, but also highly influential customers and competitors, it's critical to start thinking about how technology and the resources that it makes available to the largest generation in human history must evolve to accommodate their needs. The plurals right behind the millennials are similar. As the digital natives of the planet, they wield technology like a smart bomb with extreme finesse and effectiveness. Like the millennials before them, they will disrupt the world in ways that we can't begin to imagine, which gives the rest of us a choice. Learn to understand them and harness their skills, in other words, join the disruptors, or be disrupted. There are no other options. So let me end with a set of observations that will hopefully give you a couple of ways to think about this information. I want to begin with Charles Darwin. We all know his famous quote about survival of the fittest. But the interesting thing is he never said that. What he did say was that those who survive are not the strongest or the smartest, but those that are most adaptable to change. In the context of generational change and along the same lines, organizational and societal evolution, it's less important to talk about survival, but more important to talk about ongoing relevance. I mean, look at a typical corporation, for example. Generations cycle through, a new cohort arriving and doing its disruptive thing every 20 years or so. If you think about a corporation as a triangle, with its skinny apex at the top and its broad base at the bottom, you've got a pretty good picture of the structure of that organization. 
At the top are the executives, who tend to be the oldest and most experienced employees in the company, and for good reason. There's an old expression that says good decisions come from experience, and experience comes from a lot of bad decisions. These people have battle scars to prove their experience. If it can be done, they've most likely already done it, often more than once. They know what works, and they know what doesn't, but only to a point. More on that in a minute. Just below them, we have the upper middle management and middle management employees who are on the front lines earning their battle scars and waiting for their opportunity to move up into a position of leadership. And finally, at the lowest level, we have our entry-level employees, large numbers of people who are learning how to play in the world of work. Now, there are times when I really bristle when I see social media posts that say things like, OK, boomer, meant as a disparaging comment. I don't bristle because I'm a boomer. I bristle because the person writing it has missed the point. In the same way that older employees who paint younger generations with the broad brush of ignorance have missed the point. To quote my television hero, Harry Bosch, everybody counts or nobody counts. Every generation in the workplace, and all workplaces, unless they're one person's sole proprietorships, are in fact multi-generational environments, and every generation brings incalculable value. In fact, here's another myth that we can blast apart. Every member of every generation, every generation, wants the same things from life and work. Balance between the two, a decent income, a sense of contribution and individual growth, and a sense that they're making a difference. But sometimes they want them in different forms. For examples, boomers, as a general rule, feel good when they're singled out for accomplishments. It's not because they're a generation of narcissists. It's because their silent generation parents told them to be invisible. Keep your head down. Don't make waves. Just do your job and be grateful that you have one to get up and go to every day. But you know what? Sometimes it's nice to be noticed. Millennials, on the other hand, also like to be rewarded for a job well done, but not as individuals. They're strong collaborators, and they want the team to be recognized for their successes. Same thing, different format. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is that every generation needs to learn how to listen a little bit better to the other generations. Boomers are on their way out, and that's a good thing, because a refresh is always a good idea. But that doesn't mean that they're an obsolete generation any more than Gen X will be when they're old enough to retire. Boomers today are the keepers of an organization's institutional memory. They're the holders of the bulk of an organization's wisdom. Wisdom, not knowledge. The joke is that the difference between the two is that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. And wisdom in the context of the workplace? Wisdom is what happens when you've been around the block a few times. It's what gives a senior, more experienced employee the ability to say to a younger, less experienced employee, you know that thing you're getting ready to do? Well, I've already done it that way a few times, and it never ends well. Let me save you the pain and trouble. It's not the older employee telling the younger employee how to do their job. It's telling them that they've already made that mistake and that they should consider a different path if they want a quick success. But there is a caveat here. This does not give the older generation license to dictate to a younger counterpart how to do something. Their job is to simply share their wisdom. The younger person's job is to afford them the respect of simply listening to what they have to say and perhaps taking it into account before they do something they might regret 
or that might have long-term consequences. Now, the opposite is also true. The only reason I know anything about what motivates millennials and plurals is because I've asked them. What works for me doesn't work for them, nor should it. They've grown up in a very different world than I did, just as their kids will grow up in a different world than them. It isn't wrong. It's just different. The good old days are never all that good. It's always better to move forward with the treasures of memory and insight and wisdom and awareness as decision-making guides. So there you go. Generations in a nutshell. Hope you found this interesting. I will post a list of additional resources at the program's website at stephen-shepherd.com. Thank you for listening. All the best. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of The Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you, and I'll see you in the next episode.